Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. The phrase, life in the big city, is an, it's an Americanism. It was a phrase used by a writer in the early of the 20th century. Uh, but it took a life of its own in time. I first heard the phrase from my mom. Uh, If things didn't go your way and you expressed it, you expressed such, uh, she would toss this phrase out. And I I heard it a lot. Uh, For her, this was good parenting. She was preparing me for life's disappointments. There was a bit of sarcasm in it. Hey, suck it up. Everybody has these problems. There was also a bit of resignation in it. Uh, There's nothing I can do about it. I can't help you. That's life in the big city. It was not comforting. I never remember feeling better after hearing it. Uh, There was no hope in it. The message was, life's messed up, do your best, but it won't be enough. Turns out, unwittingly, uh, my mom was giving me the first bit of theological training that I would get in my life. Life's not all it's cracked up to be. No matter how hard you work or how much you achieve, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never ultimately overcome. Life's kind of scary and a little empty that way. That's kind of a depressing thing to tell a kid. The truth is, lots of people live life like that. Life's messed up, just do the best you can. But it's not the full story. Hebrews is a group of Jewish believers experiencing some very, very difficult circumstances. They were suffering for their beliefs, being publicly humiliated, Their property was being confiscated. They were being persecuted. And God sort of gives very similar advice. But with a twist. This is life in the city. But it's really not the big city at all. And here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 13. For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. That's the big city. Uh, I, re- I was studying that this week and the picture came to my mind of uh, Crocodile Dundee. Now, how many of you have not seen Crocodile Dundee? Maybe you're young or you've never seen the first one. Anybody like that? That's very good because you can't understand Hebrews unless you have seen Crocodile Dundee. Do you remember when he comes from the jungle and he enters the city and he's walking with the girl, you know, the, And he gets mugged by these two guys and one of them pulls that little switchblade out and she's real nervous, you know, and he's always calm. I mean, he's, he is like the, just the perfect character. And, and he goes, that's not a knife. And then she, he pulls from behind this big old hunting knife and he goes, that's a knife. (laughs) And they go running off. I don't know, I might have mixed a little British 
and Australian in there. I'm not sure. Gail calls it Cockney when I do that. I mean, that's the language. Uh, that's not a knife. This is, this is the writer of Hebrews saying, that's not the city. This is the city. Uh, the writer of Hebrews acknowledges there's nothing ultimate here. You'll never find what you're ultimately looking for here. There's no security to be found. Um, not in any earthly city, anywhere, at any time. There has never existed a city, and there never will exist a city where everything you need and want to be fulfilled as a human being will ever be there. That's what he's saying. And so in the ancient times, now listen, you've got to remember this, because the city in the ancient times was even a bigger deal in many respects than even the way we understand city when we hear the words. We're so used to them. Back in, that, in the ancient days, you weren't secure unless you were in a city. I mean, it had walls. The only security and order and sort of political uh, life and laws and commerce and exchange and economy, you could only find that in the city. And so everyone longed to be in the city. And in the fifth century, when Rome fell, the city of cities, people believed Rome to be the eternal city. Augustine wrote his book, The City of God. And in it, uh, he was basically interpreting the fall of Rome for the Christians of that day. And he says, the fall of Rome is just another chapter in the sacred drama between the cities of God and the cities of earth. And it was a reminder to believers that you'll never find utopia here. And he encouraged believers not to make their home here. Now, let's say something about this city that they're seeking. There is a city to come. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time looking at Revelation or anything of that nature about the city. But I do want you to hear a little bit what the city's described like when it gets here. Because John will say in chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the earth had ceased to exist. It just went out of existence. I mean, that's what we're headed for. Reality as you know it. And the sea existed no more, and I saw the holy city. Here it is. It's a holy city. It's called the New Jerusalem. Descending out of heaven from God. Made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. Whatever this city is, it's not a city we could create. It's one that literally had to come out of the sky. It was God's work, God's idea, God's project. Whatever that city is, we won't create it. It comes down out of the sky. And he says, and I heard a loud voice, and someone said, look, the residence of God among human beings. Until God is the center, until God is present, he will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore. Mourning or crying or pain in the former things have ceased to exist. And this is a sinless, tearless city 
where God is in the center of it. And as one writer said, the consummation of the Christian hope, hopefully you see it in here, is, is supremely social. It's God in the center of his people and us all around him. No sin, no tears. The older I get, the more I ache for it. And so, who doesn't want that? And so the question I wish I would have been able to have answered for me when I was a kid and I was hearing about life in the big city, but all it did was suck the life out of me. It would have been nice if somebody would have come along and said, hey, how would you like this city? This really isn't the big city. This is life in the little city. You're like, how do you get in? What does it mean spiritually to become cityfied in the big city? That's what Hebrews is about. Becoming cityfied, but in the big city. Let me break Hebrews down for you this way. I like the way one commentator sort of outlined the book, and I think it's a graphic picture of of, uh, what Hebrews is trying to say. Hebrews is really a journey of faith. It's the journey of faith. So anyone who is a believer and is living by faith, they're, they're, they're looking forward to, to something beyond this world. That's the faith journey. And so he traces Israel's history all the way through the wilderness, out of Egypt, into the wilderness, until they finally get to the rest of God, which was Canaan land. That was supposed to be Canaan. But he applies it to the people in, in the days of the New Testament, and he says there's sort of a heavenly uh, Sabbath. There's a heavenly Sabbath. You're journeying toward it. And remember, a lot of them did not get in it. And he's warning the present Hebrews, don't go on this long journey and not get in. You want the rest of God. And then the second part of this journey is into the presence of God, where Jesus is presented as the high priest. And, like, and unlike Israel in the past where they used to have to go in and do sacrifices, he is saying Jesus is a sacrifice. And there's a heavenly sanctuary. There's a heavenly Sabbath. Make sure you get there. There's a heavenly sanctuary. Make sure you enter it. It's all about a, a faith journey. Get in there. Get in there. And then at the end of the book, it culminates into this idea of the city of God. You eventually reach the city. That's the future. So there is this movement throughout the book and he's pushing you to get to to where you need to get in your journey of faith. And so he uses words like come. You'll hear it a lot. Draw near. Enter. It's it's pushing you. Then something interesting happens. This driving book comes to chapter, you know, 11 and at the end of 12 and something amazing happens in there. Uh, he was looking for this city with foundations. Let, let, me, let me take you here. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And this is, this is a perfect tense. It's You've already arrived. So but the, by the time you get to the end of Hebrews, this push in this journey, there's a, a sense of arrival that happens at the end of chapter 12. 
and, and he writes, you've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into the myriads of angels. But then he says in chapter 13, which we just read, here we have no lasting city, but we still seek the city. So I want you to see the picture. In a sense, by the time you get to the end of chapter 12, he wants you to feel like there is a sense of arrival. By the time you get into chapter 13, which is here, where really the culmination of the book is here and something unique happens in chapter 13, he reminds you, you're still seeking the city. And so here's where, you know, we have to figure out what he means. And it kind of looks like this. There is a sense in which you have arrived in the big city. But there is a part of the city you don't get until the future. So it's one big city, but it's sort of in uh, the way it's talked about, the way the kingdom is talked about, is there's an already and there is a not yet. And so here's the burden of the book. How do people who have in one sense arrived in the city live knowing that they haven't actually experienced it fully yet and it won't until the future? That's us. It's, it's kind of a split personality. It's a weird place to be as believers. Because there is a, because the scriptures calls us, call, they call, we're citizens of heaven already. Philippians 3.20, we're citizens of heaven already. And the book culminates with the idea that we're already there. And yet there's a part of it we haven't achieved yet. So we live like aliens and strangers. We live like people that haven't arrived yet. Now, Hebrews 13 then describes what it's like to live like this. We actually live in a city here, but we've arrived in the big city, but not fully. That's our life. And so you can see, imagine, there's a tension that believers live with. If you don't feel the tension, something's wrong with your spiritual life. Like in other words, if that tension has been resolved in your life somehow and you don't feel it, then the writer of Hebrews has much to say to you. And so this tension arises, is how do I, how am I a citizen of another city, but yet live in this city? Right here where we are now physically. That's what Hebrews is about. Now, let me say a couple things. Hebrews is a sermon. It's written like a sermon more than a letter. Um, it has, it's written by an author we do not know. It has the most elegant Greek in the New Testament. It has the greatest oral persuasion in the New Testament. It has a sense of urgency that has blown theologians and biblical scholars away. So it is elegant and it is urgent. And, and it blows you away because of that. You can't imagine the urgency that fits with such elegance. Brilliantly written. It's how we know Paul didn't write it. 
If you walked into our office and you went through some legal documents that are in a folder and you pulled them out and you started to read them, the words in there you'd never heard before and things you'd never seen, you wouldn't say to yourself, oh, I wonder if Pete wrote this up for the church. No. That's how we know. Thank, thankfully, Paul gave us 13 letters to prove he didn't write Hebrews. He handles the gospel and, and the journey of faith with a sacredness that exceeds all in the scripture. In fact, I was studying this text in Aspen. In Aspen, they have a little museum. It sits in the center of town. Half the roof is gone and you can... You're looking out because Aspen is a small little town. It's less than 6,500 people living in this little city. But it's in a bowl surrounded by these mountains. And you look out over that city and you're studying. And uh, it's the perfect place to study Hebrews because there's a majesty and a beauty and truthfully breathtaking. It's how I felt studying Hebrews. The air is thinner you got to stop and catch your breath at the flight of stairs. you got to walk up four pretty big flights of stairs to get to the top of this place. And when you get to Aspen, you got to sort of get, you gotta get acclimated to the altitude. I, I join the rec center there, and I work out there. But, but for two days, I just try to breathe. It's 8,000 feet, and... Um, and drink water so that I can get into a workout without getting sick. Well, I joined this little rec center. And uh, I saw these two people working out. One guy was training the other. One looked younger training the other one. And I could tell that the young guy training the older guy just figured he was uh, um, just a wealthy guy wanting, you know, with a trainer. It's a small gym, so everybody's seeing what everybody's doing. And I'm watching them and they're doing strange stuff. You know, and I'm, you know, partly learning from it, partly wondering what's going on here. Well, I noticed that the trainer has some CrossFit shoes on and a CrossFit t-shirt on. So I'm dying to have a conversation with this guy. So when I, when I get the chance, I go by them and I say to him, hey, those CrossFit shoes? Yeah. Oh yeah, they're new. Oh, they're nice. And I go, yeah, they're really nice. I've never seen those before. We start talking about CrossFit a little bit. Because the games were on at the same time. And these elite athletes, incredibly elite athletes, were watching, were just mind blown by them. I said, he, he was like, oh yeah, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So he's standing here with this other guy who I'm completely ignoring. And all of a sudden he goes, yeah, speaking of elite athletes, he said, have you ever worked out with a professional hockey player? And I go, no, 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 no. He goes, that's who I'm training. So I look over at him and go, hello, he was from Russia. I'm not good with accents, so I think you're learning that in this series. <laughs> he gives me his name. This was him. He is the uh, goalie for the New York Islanders. And uh, I'm talking to this guy about this fella, and he goes, oh, yeah, he goes, let me tell you something about elite athletes. He goes, we were just talking about elite athletes. He said, you can't believe a hockey player. He goes, look at him right now. He goes, yeah, I'm watching you guys doing weird stuff. And he goes, yeah, we've been working out for three hours. 
And about 30, about two hours in, I put him through a 30 minute grueling thing, grueling, that would have made you fall over and die. 30 seconds later, he's 100% ready to go again. And I'm watching him, he's on the ground doing these funky things, you know, with his legs, strength and everything, because he's a hockey player. And I was just amazed by it. So we had a great conversation. And that's, that's how, and I, so I said, well, what are you guys doing here? And he goes, we come here to the altitude so that he can get his lungs expanded. Because if you can do it here, you can do it down there. And that's how I thought about Hebrews. Uh, it's not easy to hear some of what we're gonna hear. It's not easy to hear in any other city, in any, any city here on earth, any culture here. And I would say probably in our day and time, what Hebrews will have to say to us will be hard to take in. It'll take your breath away a little. You'll have to acclimate. Maybe expand your lungs if you haven't been training. But you'll be in better shape. And you'll be able to operate with greater capacity. So, before we actually dive in to the end of chapter 12, which brings us to this city, and look at what life is like it, I want to just quickly just give you two things to get you ready, as if we were acclimating to the thin air of Hebrews. So can I do that for you? Get you two, give you two things. Only two. I could have given you five. Okay, I could have given you five th- things to acclimate, but it, it, it just be too overwhelming. I'm just going to give you two simple ones. Here's the first one. Be prepared. Be prepared when we launch into this to take your faith as serious as you ever have. So right now, if your faith is just there, you, you will lose your breath. Your hands will be on your knees fast. So be prepared to take your faith as serious as you ever have. If your faith has gotten lackadaisical, maybe a little complacent, and you're even a little lethargic. The Christian life is a movement, it's a journey. You will have to move through thin air. It's a pretty, let me get his mug off of this thing, I'm sorry, you had to keep looking at Uh, Great guy, we had good conversation, but... uh, no need to keep looking at him. Uh, but it might be light, nice to uh, at least see this again. You're going to be breathing thin air in this city, which is above. Which is upward. And so, um, considering that it's a movement, and maybe you're not moving... Maybe you've completely stopped. You might even be regressing. And that, that looks a little bit like this. You've taken your faith for granted. You're making little compromises where you haven't before. Maybe you're not considering God at all in your decisions. Hebrews calls it, you've become spiritually dull. The writer of Hebrews will jolt you into reality. 
it will be a 30-minute grueling workout. And I'll tell you what he does. He will remind you of who God is. And, and, and let me put it to you this way, because we don't always get it put to us this way these days. You better know who you're dealing with. Hebrews will give you a picture of God we probably need more than ever before. And then he'll talk about the danger of neglecting so great a salvation. And maybe you've been neglecting it. Just to give you a feel, let me just read these for you and you just take these in. This is one of five warning passages that Christians, believers, readers of the Bible, theologians, Bible scholars can't compute to some degree many of these, the intensity of these warnings. He says, do not throw away your confidence or your faith. It has great reward. For you need endurance. You gotta get there. In order to do God's will and so receive what's promised. In other words, don't bail before you arrive. For just a little longer, and he who is coming will arrive and will not delay. But the righteous one will live by faith. That's, that's you. But if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back, I'll take no pleasure in him. We are not among those who shrink back and thus perish. I mean, whatever shrinking back is leads to dying. But we are among those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the language of Hebrews. One commentator, Hughes, calls it, and I love this, a tonic for the spiritually debilitated. Now, if you're not a believer, you may not even be on this journey yet. The scriptures in this book have an urgency beyond. Listen to Hebrews chapter four. So God again ordains a certain day. This is back in the beginning of the book where we talk about the rest, enter the rest. He says, today. And he uses this Verse, he quotes it out of the Psalms three times today, speaking through David. After so long a time, oh, that today you would listen as he speaks, do not harden your hearts. For the one who enters God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. This is God saying, This is the writer of Hebrews, which he gives this invitation through the book come, draw near. Enter today if you hear his voice, get in. There's an urgency. If you've never heard, if you've never given your life to Christ, today's the day. That kind of urgency. So be prepared to take your faith as serious as possible. And then this last one, this is my last one. You'll be challenged to stop asking the question, how do I get my life together? 
is start asking the question, how do I give my life away? You ever notice how here in this life and in this city we're always consumed with how we can make our lives a little bit better and get our act together? We're like the little kid that comes out of high school or maybe halfway through college says, I gotta go find myself and needs to travel through some foreign land. And we stay that way as believers. Always trying to get our lives together. If this could just happen, if we could just get this, and we're just constantly trying to make our lives better. We stop asking the question, how do I give my life away? Because that's what mature disciples have been. Am I reading this summer? This was sort of at the center of it. What does it mean to come to a point in your life where you stop asking, how do I get my life together? And you start figuring out how to give it away. Now that'll take your breath away. You'll have your hands on your knees really fast. Hebrews is not a TED talk. You're not gonna get much advice for getting through your day. It's not some new interesting discovery to help you get your life together or how to succeed in this world. It's a vision for holiness. That's what Hebrews is. A vision for holiness, compelling enough to make you endure anything to make sure you share in it. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And it'll give you a vision for that. And you may not even realize I was very challenged by this. You may not even realize the ways in which your life is actually so focused on you. How many ways you protect yourself and what you have from living the life God wants you to live. And I guarantee it, you think you're more open than, than you are. I guarantee you do. Well, I don't, and I don't, and I don't, but I at least do. You're just in low altitude. God asked you to run a mile. You could never do it. But he often calls us to two miles. seems very few of us are fit enough for it. Came across this poem that I cannot get out of my head. It's actually a prayer. And it describes, the name of it is Three Kinds of Souls. There's a Russian guy. It's called Three Kinds of Souls. They pray, they pray 
three different kinds of prayers. I'm going to show it to you. It's been amazing. Three kinds of souls, three prayers. The first one is, Lord, I'm a bow in your hands. Draw me lest I rot. And the second one is, Lord, don't overdraw me or I'll break. And then it's this prayer, overdraw me, Lord. Who cares if I break? That kind of prayer. So if you've sort of lived in this way, ah, yeah, you know, Lord, hey, put a, put, you can put a little pressure on me. But then he starts to do it and you're like, oh, oh, oh. you start losing your breath and you go, hey, 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 I think I'm gonna break. Then there's that other guy. He's the NHL hockey player. Put him through a grueling workout and 30 seconds later, he's ready to go. Lord, I'm ready to break. See, most of us getting our lives together, getting our lives together so that someday we'll, we'll be in that position. You never get there here. So I'll close with uh, another poem. So I came across this poem uh, written by a German poet. And it's called The Holy Longing, which I think Hebrews is gonna call us. It's gonna create a longing in us maybe we haven't had in a long time. Anyway, uh, Johann von, I think we would say go, but it's Goethe. And he says this, it's called The Holy Longing. Tell a wise person or else keep silent because the mass man will mock it right away. In other words, whatever he's going to say right now, you could tell it to a smart guy. Everybody else is going to mock what I'm about to say. Then he says, and you'll just have to take it in because it's poetry. In the calm water of the love nights where you were begotten and where you have begotten, a strange feeling comes over you. So these are like sacred moments of life. But in this moment, these sort of sacred moments, you see a silent candle burning. Just want you to get the visual. Of in this sacred moment of your life, in the midst of your whole world, you see this little tiny candle burning out there. This is what you're being drawn to now in this moment. He says, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, when you see it, when you finally see that, you're no longer caught in the obsession with darkness. See, other than that, you're just caught up in a world and it's dark and you don't even realize it's dark because you're running around trying to get everything. But all of a sudden, there's this glimmer. And he says, so you're no longer caught in the obsession with darkness when you see that light and a desire for higher lovemaking sweeps you upward. So he uses this sort of uh, intimate uh, sexual kind of image as sort of the climax of a sensation. And all of a sudden, whatever you thought was the highlight of your life is not the highlight at all because that light is so fascinating. And it draws you upward. That's what Hebrews is. In the midst of darkness, there's this light. And then I love this line, and I put the next two paragraphs on here for you to see. 
This is the end of the poem. Distance does not make you falter. In other words, even though the light is ahead of us, in one sense we're not there yet, that's Hebrews, but distance doesn't make you falter. It's that appealing to you. It drives you. Now, arriving in magic flying, because this is the way somebody feels when they're approaching this light, and finally you become insane for the light, and you're the butterfly, and you're gone. I mean, you're just gone. You have just left this reality at some level, and you're heading for that light. And then he closes it with this. As long as you haven't experienced this, in other words, there's no holy light, no holy city, no big thing you're seeking after, which is essentially requires that you die to grow. If you haven't experienced that, I love this phrase, haven't been ever, read it at the beginning of the summer, haven't gotten out of my head all, you're just a troubled guest on the dark earth. That's how many of us live. That's life in the, the big city here. You're just a troubled guest on the dark earth. And that's essentially what Hebrews is saying to everyone whose faith has sort of waned where they're supposed to be citizens of heaven. But they're really just troubled guests, troubled foreigners, troubled strangers on the earth. Did it just get bright in here or was it just me? I mean, I don't want to, it's the elephant in the room. I'm getting a tan now. Killed the moment, but that's okay. Thank you, tech booth. Thank you. So, the question becomes, yeah, I think I feel, you feel more like a troubled guest on earth than a citizen of heaven? So next week, we have to talk about this first because it's absolutely essential and it's what Hebrews 12 does. The entire book pushed into this journey gets you to the end of chapter 12 and it gives you this image, this picture of this city and what it's like to have arrived there in one sense. And that's the only way you'll be able to understand is uh, what it means to live for the city in chapter 13. So the question becomes, how do you get into that city? How does one approach that city? And that's how we're gonna start next week. How do you get in? And next week's Labor Day. I strongly advise you to cancel all your plans. (laughs) Don't go out of town and don't die. You need to hear this. All right, let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for where we are headed. We just, we need this, Lord. There are many of us, some in this room who have not been living like citizens. And the truth is our faith is really weak. Maybe some of us haven't even contemplated being a part of that city. And we need today to hear your voice and not harden our hearts to it. But we're ready for the challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.